0: Used later for in
1: the, in the country offenses. Do you mind if I switch topics even though we have well, no, no, go, go CGI right there? Reminding us it's finance o'clock, Axel. You, uh, you have Mike right now. Uh, I, I, w- I wanted to, to hear if Axel knew about uh, the amount of assets Gazprom has uh, outside of Russia because it seems like the mechanisms we use to make Russia go into technical default is being used on Gazprom, except that, unlike Russia. Gazprom is organized and legally a normal company, put normal in air quotes. But that means that debtors can uh, go after assets because they're not getting paid uh, their expected cash. So that leads us to a court battle over how exactly is this going to happen? Because uh, I don't really know if our legal systems are meant to uh, say, hey, The company tried to pay you, but they're under sanctions for being uh, part of the evil empire, so that's not going to work. So I was really curious what Axel's view was, because I know a number of their assets exist in uh, his country of birth.
0: My understanding was, was it not that um, Germany nationalized gas from Germania some, uh... they did.
2: Yes, they did. Sorry, I, I didn't hear the whole question. I just received another call. I apologize. But yes, they nationalized that. Actually, they put it under te- not nationalized, sorry. They put it under temporary administration until the 30th of September.
1: Oh, I said, given that currently, uh, we're we're sort of in the grace period now, but uh, it looks like the uh, Western uh, financial powers are using on Gazprom the same mechanisms we use to force Russian technical default, except Gazprom is a company. So debtors will now have claims on Gazprom assets outside of Russia. Obviously, the Russian courts won't care. Um, so, what is the... Uh, do you know anything about the uh, distribution of non-Russian Gazprom assets and oil facilities, oil transport, etc., and how you think courts might touch that given the sort of Wild West and differentiated nature of the, the case?
2: Well, that is a very good question, especially because I don't have a perfect answer for it yet. Um, I've been looking at this for some time, as you may remember from one of our discussions, and there are a number of, Sorry, this is heavy-duty rain here. just so, and There are a number of uh, assets which uh, Gazprom has in the West, and all of them uh, should be challenged. But for that, you first and foremost need to... Um, for You have to have a motion of seizure and you have to have a reason for seizure uh if that comes to bear then it works because gazprom is considered to be a gre a government-related entity and uh, out of that i think this is what you're leading at out of that um one could construe the case as a gre that their assets are up for grabs just as well because of the technical default now it's not that easy and can i go more
1: can't they go boring with it though Right? Why do they need all this GRE stuff if they're if they if they default and I'm a debtor, then I can go after assets. Period. Right? Or do European courts do this differently? But
2: they have no, no, no. That's absolutely right. But they haven't defaulted yet, to my to my
1: knowledge. That's coming up in the next week or two. Like we will be talking about this on space when it hits. So that's this is like 100 percent. Not 100. Nothing's 100. This is 98 percent coming down the pike unless some kind of crazy deal is reached or the Russians like. All of a sudden, do the right thing and march back to Russia where they belong, where which none of us thinks is going to happen. So, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, unless that happens or some kind of crazy deal is reached around natural gas in Europe, which I guess anything's possible, like ninety-eight percent, that's coming down the pike. Gazprom will be in like the next two weeks. So we're going to be there. Like this will be this will be uh me having all sorts of fun and us drinking to Gazprom in default because. There's no way that works well for the Russians.
2: I agree. Absolutely. And I also uh, share your opinion that Gazprom will not be able to avoid that default. And then you have to be quick, which means you have to have money in order to sue them. And you have to have the the commercial acumen and uh, capacity. This should all be prepared already, I, I would hope.
1: I mean, Citibank is the agent, so there's nothing the Russians can do. Again, it shocks me that given that it was clear that really high up in the Russian administration they knew that they were planning on this horrific war and despite having the kind of financial acumen that they should know better because I know better and I'm not as good as some of their top people um, how all of their bonds have foreign agents like this isn't a problem for them if Sparebank is the agent on all of their bonds but they're not. Yeah, but, These but are by Spare City Banks- and
2: yeah, no, no, of course, but they couldn't be. Sparebank is, uh, does not have uh, the license for such operations for uh, being a trustee. They don't have that uh, capacity, neither, neither in London nor anywhere else.
1: There's not a single Russian bank that can be an agent on a bond. Not, obviously no. not now, but before this. Not one oh, yeah. launched in New York or London.
2: Exactly. You not in the London market. That's the whole point.
1: London has no problem with foreign banks launching stuff there. It's not that That's not true. To no, set no, no, no,
2: no. That's not true. There are different licensing, uh, uh, different licensing operations under the FCA, and uh, you have different you have restrictions as to what you can offer. And if you want to be, for example, a trustee for a bond, not only do you have to be market credible, but you actually have to have the the license in that regard as a credit institution with full licensing capacity for that. So. Uh, State Street, Wilmington Trust, the likes, all of that had this issue in the past. They did resolve it, but typically you end up with one of the big trustees. And uh, you need to be, a, if, if you want to be an acceptable payment agent in the London market, um, you better be someone big. So then you end up with Barclays or Citibank or the like.
1: Is there a list, that, Axel, do you have a list I can go look up for everyone who is available in the London market? I'm really curious to go just see
2: literally Oh, the yeah, it is definitely available. If you go to the fca.co.uk, or sorry, gov.uk, uh, FCA, uh, that's where you should go. You should uh, be able to look up all the credit institutions and their various licensing capacity. I don't think that you will find any Russian institution there which has the respective <laughs> license, <laughs> licensing at hand. <laughs> And Will and I have to step into a lunch meeting. I'm, I'm sorry. I have to take these damn okay, so... dogs with me. Yeah, I'm already carrying the dogs with me. So there
0: you go. I will ask some questions of finance because I'm very curious. So finance, wh- why did you say, you know, that the Russians are screwed because city is the agent? Wh- what does the agent have to do with it? Is it about the legal... Um, uh, what should
1: we say what legal legal area is yeah I, I need i need to make my i i actually wrote a me being me i wrote a lovely post on this to explain it with a nice little graphic and then of course i never published it so everyone could read it because i answer this question like every week um <laughs> uh, <coughs> so when you pay a, the way a bond works right so loans is you deal directly with your bank bonds are tradable instruments because there's this problem where like if you owe your bank five hundred thousand dollars you have a bad problem if you owe your bank five hundred million dollars your bank has a problem so when people need to borrow huge amounts of money instead of one bank taking all the risk they issue a bond so lots of people can buy that bond and then that bond is traded right like you can trade bonds the way you trade stocks give or take. There's some differences, but the gist there. But because bonds pay coupon all the time, someone has to be the holder of record of um, that bond. And they have to make sure that sort of you're following what's called your covenants. Uh, Because there's all sorts of legal language in bonds to make sure that the people who made the loan don't get screwed. Part of my, you know, nice technical financial term to explain things. So you can't do things like, issue a bond and then like sell all your other assets so that the people who you just get who gave you all the cash get screwed right like bonds stop you from doing that that's in the legal contract so um the agent on the bond is the person who does the simple work of like holding the bond and making sure that all the payments go out to all the people who hold the bond on the day that payments are due coupons are due and that's called the trustee on the bond um this there is a fee for that, but it's incredibly minimal. Like that's 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 not a big part. Um, the actual guys who get to issue the issuing fee and sort of the middle money, the the money you make in the middle there, that's the big part. But this little trustee fees, this is peanuts. Like this is a, like banks don't really compete on that particularly. That's not a big part, but it's a thing people do. However, when your agent is Citibank, aka a non-Russian. Bank. When your agent is Citibank, then Citibank is under the purview, if you will, of Western financial authorities, right? Citibank has to listen to the U.S. If the SEC or, you know, the, the Treasury Department of the U.S. tells Citibank to jump, Citibank responds with how high. Um, if OFAC, you know, our Office of Foreign Asset Control, tells JP Morgan to jump, JP Morgan says, Uh, Can you please send me a measuring stick so I can know how high? Um, You know, they might wrangle around with lawyers, but that's basically the way it works. The most they can do is try to pretend they're jumping um, higher than they are, but they actually have to respond. They have to do the thing that their regulators tell them. Ignoring the regulators of your own country, especially in the financial world, or really any regulator where you want to do business, can result in massive, ridiculous penalties. Uh, especially if it involves agreeing to send money to somebody who is sanctioned. Uh, Deutsche Bank paid billions, multiple billions with a B. It's one of the most, one of the largest fines of all time that any financial institution has paid, uh, basically for dealing with Iran. So when, so by having these agents, so by using agents that are foreign banks that are that have to listen to western countries um it makes all of these bonds susceptible to exactly what happened which is hey jp morgan you know what you know how you're supposed to like disperse all these payments in the russian government yeah you're not going to do that we're not allowing you to do that so the agents on their bonds are just not dispersing the payment which pushes the bonds and thus the company or in this case, or the country into technical default because the bondholders aren't getting paid. Now, normally that doesn't happen, but hey, there's a first time for everything. Welcome to 2022
0: sanctions. Thank you, So, sure. Going to some uh, some other loans just to uh, to to you know continue on a, on a similar topic. So commerçant, that's the um, what should we say the. Uh, uh, Russian equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times kind of paper, is saying that uh, the down payments for uh, mortgages in Sberbank in Russia went from somewhere between twenty to uh, fifteen to twenty percent of the value of the mortgage up to thirty-five uh, percent.
1: You, I loan you. You want to buy a one million ruble house, which think would be about 200,000. It's what? Seven rubles to the dollar? I can't remember the conversion rate. Let's check this out. I really shouldn't know this. about 60, 60
0: rubles to the dollar. 60 right. rubles.
1: We're up to 60 rubles to the dollar. Okay. So you want to buy a 10 million ruble uh, house. Okay. Um, and you have to put... And let's say you have to put 10% down. Okay. So then I loan you nine 9 million rubles. You put down 1 million rubles. Now, uh, I'm my mortgage... If I'm a bank, is secured by the value of your house. So if you stop paying me your mortgage, I take over your house, I sell it, and I hopefully get my money back. Um, if I can't get nine million dollars back, assuming you missed the very first payment, then I'm out my money and I'm hosed. Uh, now, in the case of rush in the case of sort of any bank, <coughs> marg- margins on mortgages are pretty small, so you know, like there's 6% mortgage, like for instance, here in the US, the mortgage rate is now up to five and a half percent. It was three. Um, And then there's all sorts of costs underneath that. So call that another half a percent to a percent. So the rates are pretty small, which means they can't have many defaults and still make money if they actually lose when customers do. So banks have to be really careful about getting enough money down that they don't go. Russian banks are still banks and still don't want to go broke. So when you're really worried about, say, your housing market collapsing because there might be a few economic problems related to a genocidal war your leaders have started, and any part of your economy that isn't part of the military-industrial complex is, uh, uh, how to put this in plain English, shitting the bed. That's the terminology for Shitting the bed completely. So if that's what's going on in your economy, then if you're a banker in russia you might be concerned that your clients might start defaulting uh, on their mortgages so you will raise the mortgage rate um and when you raise the mortgage down payment you are swinging a sledgehammer normally banks don't like to do this writ large and there's a reason why in most countries the mortgage down payment is a regulated number so you don't have banks in good times doing a race to the bottom where when things are good they all try to lower the down payment amounts like we saw in the subprime crisis where sort of everyone races to have the crappiest loan so that they can get the most crappy business um so often that's regulated but when you raise that number you're really taking a a sledgehammer if that number raises countrywide, you're really hitting the housing market hard because you're you're changing the affordability for a house. So if I need if I go from 10% to 15% down in the case of that house before, instead of needing 1 million rubles down payment to buy a house, I now need 1.5 million rubles down payment to buy a house. And having to save up 50% more to purchase your first house is a pretty big number and that has significant knock-on effects to when and how people will buy a house and thus how much construction goes on, how many mortgages are lent, et cetera. So that's that's sort of the effect of what you hear when you see rising uh, mortgage down payments. Um, it is not a shocking thing to see from a country that's Ministry of Finance is not, has a relatively dour outlook on their economy overall and whose economy, as mentioned earlier, has having significant internal dislocations of the struggle. So basically means less
0: demand. Um, what what other consequences would this have on the let's say, the rest
1: of the economy? Um, I will... If this was the US or the UK, it would have massive external knock-on effects because housing is such a big part of our economies and it affects so many things overall i'm just not sure if the same can be said for russia or if the same can be or if there's huge regional differences i'm missing like russia could frankly use significant housing investment especially provincially like a ridiculous percentage of their population lives without, uh um, and like you know sort of basic in you know industrial era amenities so uh you know, but the other side of that is that means that they just don't invest in housing, right? Like the whole Russia doesn't care about its people thing is true, which means that housing is a smaller percentage of its economy overall. Uh, this is something that if you if you wanted really hardcore numbers, and I you really want me to dork out about it, I'm going to have to spend a day and talk to some people, one of which will probably be Marty, to, uh No, it's fine. It's fine. Of, this is
0: this is this is you know high level, um, you know thirty thousand foot view, yeah, that, general economic the, the principles. on to-
1: yeah, right. The things you want to think about is the fact that, like, because Russia doesn't invest in housing as much as other countries do overall, it comes with having a much smaller middle class because they don't like to empower people to begin with. Um, and so the middle class there tends to be the people who are taking advantage of the corruption at the appropriate levels to their superiors and know how to keep their heads down for the most part, et cetera. Uh, right. When that's sort of what you're looking at as a country, then yes. You're still going to have significant knock-on effects from raising mortgage down payments in a recession. Like this is this is one of those problems where recessions in modern economies can be self-reinforcing because um, the way that financial firms protect themselves leverages the economic impacts of downturns because it creates feedback loops that make things worse um, for other parts of the economy. Uh, so, yes, that's going on. But in Russia, I would expect it to be a little more muted than if that happened here in the U.S. Like, if we raised our mortgage down payments for a standard mortgage from 20% to 25% in the U.S., uh, I, would, I would be super extra special doom and gloom about our outlook. I don't think the Russian economy is quite as hinging on mortgages the way that we are.
0: But what it does is it makes the economy even more one-dimensional, right? It already there was already a disproportionately ridiculous amount of uh, um, oil and gas as a proportion of the economy, and this is just driving it further, it's just driving it further out of balance and making it even more uh, ridiculously a petrostate, state, right?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, quite frankly, oil and gas is almost reducing as a, as a percentage overall because their production is going down. But the only games in town in Russia right now are oil and gas to some extent, and, you know, that's still a big thing. And the military, the military industrial complex is the main game in town, right? Like mercenaries, you know, people on contracts and privates are getting 10, you know, are getting 200,000 a month, 300,000 rubles a month. When these guys used to be getting twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 rubles a month, that's a huge amount of money in Russia, especially for provincials, uh, you know, for provincial incomes, you know, five, six times the average income median income in a lot of these areas so like becoming a uh you know signing up to be meat for the grinder in ukraine or even being a logistics or whatever they they have their mercs and contract guys doing is clearly where you know the best opportunity is for the um lower and lower middle class, and quite frankly, even some of the, the, the for anything but the non-wealthy Russian citizens. Um, at the same time, you know, the only factories we have evidence that are on are those that they can still run that support the military-industrial complex. But since all the high-end, uh, more interesting machine factories are all down because of all these import restrictions, that's leaving us with whatever factories are making their barrel bombs, all the power plants that are like coal plants that help support this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's literally the military industrial complex is in overdrive right now and it's providing the best possible incomes. If you are a, um, otherwise non, uh, you know, if, if you are not a, a if you're an even unlucky person in the Russian Federation, which is clearly being doubly unlucky. Um, and then, yeah, and that's probably, that's more opportunity than than is provided by the oil industry to the, that crowd. Because working in the oil plant at the low level doesn't pay the way that being a contractor for the, the murderous genocidal army does. Uh, this, by the way, has been pointed out by Camille Kazani, is going to be a long-term source of instability for the Russia.
0: So what do you tell the people who say the sanctions aren't working?
1: Their tank factories... Are shut down. Their truck and car manufacturing is down well over 50%, possibly over 80%. And the cost to repair any sort of motor vehicle in Russia has shot up at least 70%. And that number seems to be rising. That assumes you can get anything repaired. Um a big reason for all of that is sanctions and the imports that are tanked. So sanctions are not complete, insofar as Russia is still able to send petrol products out and get money in for that. But sanctions are clearly working to affect their military-industrial complex and are absolutely affecting their ability to wage war. They won't win the war by themselves, but they're making a death.
0: And um, with the money that the directions are getting in for the export of petrol products and uh, natural gas, what can they buy with that? Swiss bank accounts. Can they buy anything useful?
1: Well, if you're a corrupt oligarch, you probably think a Swiss bank account's useful right about now. Can
0: they buy anything that might be enabling them to restart the tank factory?
1: No, no, they, they they don't seem to be able to buy anything that lets them make stuff go boom, at least anything high-tech. Um, they seem to be able to produce uh, low-end, you know, 1950s or earlier era um, unguided ammunition to try to um, assault Ukraine like it's World War I. Uh, that they seem to be able to produce a lot of. Uh, they seem to be able to do that With their domestic industry for we're not sure how long, Uh, but they can't make tanks, they can't make new aircraft, they might not be able to repair their aircraft. Um, They'd certainly don't have a good domestic, like, there's no Russian answer to the Barakhtar drone, right? Like, this isn't the Soviet Union where they might have tried to figure out how to build something useful. Uh, There's none of that going on. So, yeah, they they, they, uh, they can stack all that money really high. And, uh, you know, w- when you hear them making a national secret, um, my answer is sort of, so what? We know they have a huge pile of it. And also, quite frankly, there's just as much possibility that that's just cover for differing Uh, empowered, you know, the empowered handful of guys in Russia to sneak a bunch of that out through the uh, foreign piggy banks that they have set up in Dubai, Switzerland, whoever's willing to take their their ill-gotten gains at the current time.
0: And I think that this is really the thing that has to be highlighted, right? There's a lot of, also in Ukraine, there's a lot of people who are complaining to say Germany or whomever about why are they still sending money to Russia, why are they funding the war? I think something that really needs to be highlighted is, yes, that's true. And it's bad, and it's uh, particularly bad that it ever came to this, that it ever came to this over-reliance on, uh, on, on on Russian energy, right? But all of this money that, say, Germany is sending to Russia to buy oil and gas from, um, mostly gas, it isn't actually being able to be used by Russia to fund the war fundamentally because of all of the other sanctions, and no, none of the sanctions are working perfectly, but in aggregate, what they're doing is they're preventing Russia from being able to put that foreign foreign currency to much use right right finance
1: yeah, so right i mean they're they're clearly switching it up to pay their soldiers more, but like Russia has an internal economy that they could use in a more standard way if they wanted. And it could fund their war effort. So they're just piling up all this cash and they'd love to spend it. And quite frankly, I'm a little surprised they haven't gotten more stuff in already because the other side of corruption is when you're really corrupt, you know how to move money illicitly. Like that's like the point, right? Like money laundering becomes a a key skill of a lot of people in your country when your country is highly corrupt. And so... When what they really need to do is go find a bunch of stuff on the black market and shove it into factories and, and or find like some black market, uh, you know, higher end stuff. I am surprised that given the ridiculous quantity of money they have, we're talking they're making a hundred billion a month, um, that they can't use that massive pile of cash to go buy some stuff from a more, Willing country, like I'm surprised they haven't even gone to like India is willing to sell whatever to them, and technically they're not sanctioned, so I'm surprised they haven't gone and just bought say every Tata truck they can because they need light trucks for the logistic train. Um, they haven't even done that yet, which to me is shocking because it would seem that India could probably get away with selling them a non-military grade truck. Russia absolutely needs every light truck it can get its hands on, as seen discussed by everyone who ever talks about logistics in Russia and the army, and they don't seem to be doing it unless somebody tells me I'm missing something. Like we're seeing all sorts of ridiculous things show up for Russian, uh, you know, on the very fringes of the Russian army, but they're not like going to people who will sell to them and buying like every car and truck because probably they're too racist or something. But like, that's where like, that's sort of the obvious thing. Like they don't need the best trucks, but they need something that drives that like you can basically fix and like, and you know maybe it's because Tata uses I think Tata like a bunch of the Indian guys use Suzu Motors, um, but like anything that's that's native produced Indian car or truck they could buy. I'm not sure if India has any non has any cars or trucks that have no technological import engines, but if they do, they should just like the obvious place like go buy them all just to try to reduce the the logistical constraints, but we're not even seeing that so. I really don't know what the hell they're doing with that fat pile of money other than like trying to send it to somebody's Swiss bank.
0: Thanks finance. Uh, let's go to Nina and then let's go to Thanos. Nina.
3: Thank you, Domen. And I'm listening to finance and I'm thinking, Oh gosh, I hope no Russian uh, person is here listening to all this good advice. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah. Uh, like what they should do. Um, uh, Actually, when I see Ferlaine here, I just want to ask Verlaine, hi, say hi. And how are you? And how are, from your perspective, going there in Ukraine? Um, hi, Nina.
4: Uh, hi, guys. Hi. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a delay. And it's good to see you all as well. Greetings uh, from Kiev, I suppose. Uh, the overall, uh, I mean, we're just staying hopeful and doing whatever we can like there's no changes to this situation even though the situation on the front line keeps changing rapidly um, especially since all of you have probably uh, had in potential fences uh, going on uh, but like the civil society is just trying to survive in any possible way though uh, it's getting harder because um, a lot of people uh, have probably um, been dealing with uh, the uh, aftermath of some event <sighs> for a long time. Still, have a lot of uh, people evacuating and contemplating on their life, especially since they have been in the mid air for like. <clears throat> taking into account those who have already lost their life that um the loss that can be you know replaced or fixed but those who are still um trying to you know settle in, in other places it's it's really hard especially since a lot of them don't really want to leave ukraine because that's their homeland and they have the right to do so um they trying to fit in the society and community and still like trying to find their way in this life so that's like the overall um the overall i guess sensation and impression that we have it like people trying to survive people trying to figure out what should they do while surviving being in the mid-air not understanding what's happening and people who are completely focused on just doing what they do in order to um bring and a victory faster and save as many lives as possible, but those who are usually in the mid air, they are mostly focused on you know preserving their kids and uh, old ones, and that's what they also do to help to save Ukraine and Ukrainians as a whole. It's 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 it, it's it's a progress. It, uh, it's it's kind of like situation no change, but all the changes at the same time. If, if you can ask something more specific, because that's quite wide.
3: Yes. Thank you, Fernand. I'm thinking of those people who are fleeing, for example, from uh, more eastern cities. uh, And if they don't want to uh, go abroad, uh, uh, how much capacity do you have, like, to give them, uh, like, some kind of uh, shelter or homes or, or whatever? Are people, like, opening their own homes uh, for for other people to to stay there or uh, how how does it look like
4: thank you well um it's almost the same like it was people are opening their houses but at the same time um you you have to understand that um a lot of people don't really know how to live uh being hosted so they want to find their own like place of apartment even though it's being Um, you know shared with a lot of other people but it's something that they kind of like rent or have Um, like we do accommodate people who are coming yes but at the same time we don't have enough places and people just generally want to get back because they don't feel like being at home this is the general idea
3: I completely understand and
0: Lane, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of sort of tourist capacities in the west of Ukraine, right, have been opened up for IDPs as well. Uh, for example, sort of mountain resorts in in the Carpathians and the like.
4: They do, but people at the same time understand that they can't live there for the rest of their lives, so they already figure out the plan. Like uh, IDPs who have uh, decided to leave uh, homes, uh, in for instance, from the eastern part of Ukraine or some who kept going back and forth they kind of felt at the same time that it's like it's temporary yes but there's nothing more permanent than something temporary <laughs> For, forgive my philosophy and and now they're contemplating like whether they should like settle down here or move further or or like um just recall what was done in their life and start to move on but at the same time they keep being dragged back because they know that there for instance some of the houses haven't been destroyed yet it depends
0: thank you for and I'll, I'll, then just dropped them I, I hope that whatever technical difficulties he has we can uh, resolve quickly and get him back up but in the meantime i will ask you about you know this isn't the first time Ukraine is uh, having to deal with this, right? It's not the first time that Ukraine is having to deal with a large number of people who are dis- internally displaced because in 2014-2015, there were you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people who were already fleeing from Crimea and from the east of Ukraine to be in you know legally Ukrainian-controlled territory as opposed to the occupied territories in the south and the east. Um, so it has... Uh, Let's say, has, has the Ukrainian civil society learned a lot from having to go through that eight years ago? And did that help, perhaps, with, uh, let's say, helping people who were fleeing from the east of Ukraine and the south of Ukraine now?
4: Um, they're not the strongest survivors, but the most capable to adapt, yeah? Um, I, I, I think, yes, in a very strange and odd manner, if you if you might say so, because um, the war, which has been ongoing, it has made us tougher uh, to some extent. Uh, we, we do know how to uh, cope with some events. Well, to some extent, we do have uh, coping mechanisms and we have like already, um, I'd say, developed structure of uh, who can like who can be addressed where where to uh to reach out to and uh, overall as a, as a civil society we have uh have been i guess bonded in in, in the matter of survival because we've been here yeah, uh, that that's why at the beginning of the full scale ev- invasion we, we were terrified but the, the foreigners felt that they were even more terrified than Ukrainians to some extent, but we were like guys we, we, we've been here like we we have already experienced it to some extent um that's why we sometimes might look like we have i don't know tough tougher skin uh and um not elastic heart, <laughs> but no it's just um it's just how the um ev- evolution works, I suppose. Yeah, we kinda evolved from the moment of full um sense of not realizing what's happening and how to deal with this, to uh to to the understanding what should be done, when should it be done, how should it be done. Even in comparison, like with the, with the first weeks of war and now um you can hardly ever see someone in Ukraine who doesn't know some kind of, I don't know. Chain of procurement, how they work, or how to reach out to local authorities for something, or to how to help someone, or who to um, who to address. Like there's there's at least one person in each like environment in each community who can find some answers to some questions, and then just you know keep uh, unfolding it. It's 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 fascinating, and at the same time, it's terrifying. Um, it's, it's a lot of overwhelming things at the same time.
0: But, but this adaptation, right? I think this is something that really has to be highlighted. It wasn't just the military that responded a lot better this time around than eight years ago, because it was in a state of war for the past eight years in the east of Ukraine, and it was preparing for something like this for Russia to go and launch another broader invasion of Ukraine uh, but also just the civil society was having lived already through eight years and more has uh, adapted somewhat right Slava Ukraini
5: Hello I'm Slava I was waiting for Ferlaine uh, so yes uh, I have a few notes Ferlaine uh, absolutely right uh, so just to picture uh, a picture to as an answer to the uh, Nina so uh, when the war started in 2022, we first week had this fun joke. It's not, not like a joke, but it's like our inside uh, inside joke. It uh, keep up a plan. It means, uh, what are your plans? So it's like uh, in Ukraine, Ukrainians do not have any plans. So war started and everyone just busy, starting busy uh, making a living and uh, somehow fight this evil. And it was joke is now is running four months, five, five months soon. So it was for us, it's like, a OK, we understood that uh, war started. So we prepared and we're going to be fighting. We're going to be resisting. We're not going to give up, but we're going to be do something with it. We're not going to be in despair, going to be crying. No, we're going to do something about it and another thing um uh when we started in 2014 uh we ukrainians learned a lot we made uh, this new neural network that working for us is like a um mostly ukrainian citizens now it was at first it was uh, even uh, uh, without the government, it was like uh, just people, volunteers co- interconnected, helping each other. But now it's like a uh, government noticed it, that is great tool, and it's like uh, uh, working together from 2022. And as uh, war started um, in 2014, uh, Ukrainians got vaccinated against Russia. St- so. Ukrainians are now ready, and 2022 showed that Ukrainians now vaccinated, and now it's time for the world to be and get vaccinated with the, against this russia, So, um, great question, Nina, because uh, for Ukrainians, as I just was a morning discussion, uh, what uh, I sometimes do. I just testing myself how I resist this Russian propaganda, Russian, Russian attack, uh, and for me, I notice it's working. So, meaning uh, my vaccination against Russians is working. And, uh, but sometimes I notice that some European, maybe some other Western people still cannot resist, but take this poison pill that uh, Russia, Russia, and Russia is uh, given uh, in exchange for some oil, some other trades. They know how to use it. So thank you, Ferdinand. Thank you. I have some few questions for you. Maybe later I will ask because you in the morning was uh, disappeared. Thank you, Ina.
0: You know, go ahead, and then we will go back to Slava's uh, questions for Ferdinand. I have but to Okay, She has to clarify she was busy and suddenly she dropped off. I don't know why. Um, Let's try to get her back on. I hope not too bad a technical glitch. Nina, go ahead in the
3: meantime. Thank you. And thank you, Slava Ukraine. Uh, This uh, Russian poison pill, I understand this thing. This is like... uh, I I think I already... I am taking it every day. Uh, And... uh, the first days of course taking this kind of poison pill is very hard and what uh, then um, the thing is that uh, i uh, actually started to uh, uh, f- from being like a, completely in a, a like a anxiety and uh, not like helpless not doing knowing what to do i started to just to do things and this poison pill is not uh, working anymore so well. So it means that uh, as much activity as I can put out and help Ukraine in different ways, it gives me more strength and the, the poison pill is not uh, poisoning me anymore that much. I am completely aware of all the propaganda. I am uh, not letting it uh, uh, <laughs> like uh, uh, throwing me out of any kind of balance. What Putin is saying I'm just laughing at it because it's like ridiculous. All those things, uh, I am not afraid. Uh, it, where is the point to be afraid? Because if he is threatening, for example, with uh, nukes here and there, and 202 seconds to London, and and we all know that it goes the same way to to Moscow and uh, uh, or or Kaliningrad or wherever. Uh, and uh, if they start nuking. We are fucked anyway, everybody of us, so where's the point being afraid? Just like, uh, uh, just uh, do anything you can and that will help uh, the poison not to, to work at all. Thank you.
0: You see, this is the healthy Finnish stoicism, right? Because people in Finland, and people of Finland, are very well aware of exactly what kind of tactics and strategies the Kremlin the regime resorts to in order to frighten people and to fearmonger and to you know, get get people to uh, uh, not fight back and stand up against the regime uh, in, in the Kremlin, right? And the best thing to do is to ignore all the nonsense that they say, all the threats, all the fearmongering. Right? And you, you have their propagandists going on television and saying, and then we're going to take the baltics and then we're gonna take poland and we're gonna all the way to berlin and you think well your your three-day special operation is now on day 138 139 um and with what army are you gonna go take poland and then germany and then it's not happening is it um the only thing they have left is this nebulous nuclear threat when they themselves perfectly well realized that if they tried anything, they'd all give blown to Slytherin anyway also. So it makes no difference to anyone or to anything. The best thing to do is to just ignore it. And the good people of Finland are well aware of that um and uh, uh it's it's people elsewhere say in the u k who still somehow fear this because it's they're not used to this constant threat and constant fear mongering emanating from uh, from the east uh
3: thank you domen uh, uh, i guess Finland has like better um like uh, what, what is the word like uh, we have resilience that, yeah yeah resilience and we are better pre- prepared but still it's uh not you can't completely generalize when you are talking to people there are people who are uh, like uh, not listening and not uh, looking and not uh, because they have various reasons to for example deny it uh, even if if they are for example so afraid they don't want to look at it uh, i have seen people that are uh, ignoring uh, these things uh, but uh, not so much anymore. This uh, Russian uh, misinform- disinformation, uh, People are getting a little bit more aware of it than before. And uh, in two, the past two years, we have seen like, like a lot in the media. What is this dis- disinformation and propaganda from the uh, from Russia? Uh, what, what does it mean? And, and things like that. When QAnon came in in the u s and and it has like a, had like a connection to this all this information, so we are pretty much uh, like uh, informed here uh, so uh, but i can't it's not right to completely say that all the Finnish people are are no 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 not
0: not everyone just you know in aggregate on average in a yeah, society yeah. it's a lot more
3: yeah used yeah, I'm
0: to it, sure it you and ready and Stalin. that that that's what
3: I that mean. Yeah, in that sense you can say because uh, of course when we look at for example France and and Germany and, and uh how the people react and uh how the le- leaders of the countries react so uh, of course there is a difference.
1: Thank you Nina. Um Finance, go ahead. Am I really looking at pictures of T thirty four World War Two attack tanks coming out of wherever the fuck they were hiding in Russia.
0: And being attempted to be loaded on the back of uh, semis and falling off of said trailers? Yes, yes, you are. That's exactly what you're looking at.
1: But, but why? Like, like, what's the point?
0: Like... I, I, I think that's for some sort of a parade. It's not, um, yeah, it's it's fine. It's it's not important. I don't think that's meant to be used for military purposes. There's one T-34 who is being that is actually being employed for a somewhat military purposes in Lisichansk as a part of a barricade. They literally took it off a of plinth, uh, as a you know, as a monument. There's actually lots of T thirty fours all around, um, let's say ex Pact There's monuments to the Second World War. Uh, there's in Berlin by uh, by the zoo as well, I think. Um but yeah, it's um uh, they, they've employed it, some as that, and they, they have a few drivable ones that they drive on it, on preventive. Slava, Slava is
5: here. Slava,
0: Slava is here, I think. Yeah, Berlin's having some technical difficulties. Slava oh. Kudryna is
1: here. Don't Slava, I, I think. I think there's a meme job for you. <laughs> is, is there any way? <laughs> get, uh, is yeah. there any way we can get a meme of General yeah. Pava? in a T34 <laughs> this is personal vehicle <laughs> it's uh, to happen
5: you can uh, dm me exactly what you want and i will try to make to happen i'm sorry i have a lot of the to do but uh, i will try to happen so don't don't worry it's only works so describe me what you what you want to see and, and dm thank you
0: yeah, finding the MSLAV with appropriate links and text. I would just quickly like to remind everyone that the T-34 was designed where? In Kharkiv, in uh, the Kharkiv Morozov uh, bureau. Um, anyway, doesn't doesn't really matter. Just wanted to highlight that. Uh, Mikhail, you're having some technical difficulties as well. Go right ahead.
5: Yeah, uh, to cite uh, President Putin... Here, uh, we are not even, uh, or we didn't, how did he say exactly? We didn't even start yet or something like that. So that's maybe uh, what he means when he's taking on the T-34 tank. Uh, uh, and also, I just remember that he didn't want to be called president anymore. What well, now,
0: Tsar? Imperator, Okay. Uh,
5: no, I'm, I'm looking for the word. It was like uh suggestion by, uh, I, I, I have to look it up again. I, I come back with that.
0: Okay, fair enough um but yeah any either of those would be perhaps a little bit more appropriate uh, for someone who doesn't really care for democratic norms and doesn't care to do, even try to get elected anymore uh, and just you know stops the ballot box just as a pro forma uh, exercise and might as well uh, make it clear that he doesn't even conceive of himself as a uh, as a democratic leader anymore uh, since he's not you know possibly ever been but certainly not for for the last decade or so Finance. Shall we talk about finance some more? I,
1: I kind of want to hear about Heimars blowing stuff up, because it seems like there's still ammo cooking off in Novikovs for the next week at the rate like, for how big they just hit something.
0: So, on the on the edges of it, maybe, but the the middle bit of it looks completely flattened, and I mean really, thoroughly, completely flattened and decimated. And it's like It's like they already had bulldozers go through it, that's how cleared up it looks like the middle bit where the main explosion happened I think it just blew everything away literally it's uh, it's absolutely amazing absolutely amazing so, finance, there's a, a question for you from one of our most uh, most loyal listeners, I can say. Um, all of these euros going into Russia, but not coming out of Russia, will that have any effect on the euro and possibly euro
1: exchange rates? Would which have an effect on, on which exchange rates? You need to be really the, specific, because the exchange so, rates are all messed up right now.
0: So, so that's a very general question. Just just the fact that there's a lot of euro flow into Russia, so basically a depletion in the supply of the euro, I guess.
1: Right. So, with lots of euros going out, um, that is possibly part of why the euro is weaker than it than normal. That is a distinct possibility. It would have that um, that would be one of the effects on the economy um, of of the current of having a significant current account deficit. Right, just as the current account surplus from Russia helps strengthen their currency, the current account deficit in the Eurozone will weaken the currency. Yes, that is true.
0: Understood. Thank you very much, Finance. Yeah, it was very uh, I, I I think our, our listener got a very direct and specific answer. Excellent. Um Slavo Krini, you had some questions for Ferlane. I think we've got Ferlane up at the stable now. Uh
5: yes, uh how uh, just a question i had uh, to the uh, special hersonket i i have i have interest uh, what uh, is your like uh, informational day? Uh, day where where do you uh, main so, main sources about the ukraine mean what happening, do you uh, take only what is happening from the Ukrainians, maybe bloggers, maybe marathon, maybe from outside of Ukraine. Just for me, too interesting how it is, because for me it's like, a, um, I already described it, but a short, I will say, uh, started for me like a regular news, uh, the internet articles, uh, mainly Ukrainian and then uh, ukrainian bloggers like Asternenko, who scraping uh journalists uh independent journalists and then i started to look outside to see how people see uh like from outside what is happening in ukraine because i like to have this balance. in in for me it's interesting how ukrainians where they how they fit the uh, uh, informational space thank you uh yes i'm here i would like to apologize
4: for C because uh Some of you have probably noticed how I vanished. Um, That was like an emergency situation somewhere in the middle of Ukraine. Um, Yeah, everything is good to go and I had some sort of technical issues. uh, So if you don't hear any one of us uh, or there's like uh, breaking up, just um, reload your application, I assume. I'm more of an exception than the rule, I would say, because my morning starts with the voice records of people who I know and their personal experience and what's happening in their unit or in their direction. Um, and then I, uh, like, if if I'm not with my parents and I'm not right now, I usually start uh, browsing through Ukrainian newsfeed and then comparing it what's happening with the English-speaking community. Uh, usually I'm, I find some inconsistencies or discrepancies. <laughs> That's our usual role. Um, uh, then I watch some of the footage from Ukrainian uh not bloggers, I wouldn't call them bloggers, Ukrainian journalists who are in Ukraine who are outside as well because they have some connections, then I go to the foreign journalists and the reporters who are in the front lines and I I deem them credible enough. Um, or I start looking at those journalists who've been to the places I've been to where people I know, and, uh, but it, it's different, for instance, but, but that's just, you have to understand, I'm an exception because I am a military interpreter, that's the point. Um, the, the rule, general rule, for instance, let's take uh, my, my parents and the IDPs who we are taking care of, um, they're day usually starts with uh, looking through telegram channels of um...